The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich once again. This week, I talked to Gina Chong about American President-elect Joe Biden's picks to lead economic policy. He's chosen an unusually diverse group of people to lead the Treasury, including former Fed Chair Janet Yellen as secretary and Wally Adeyemo as her deputy. Meantime, the Council of Economic Advisors will be overseen by Cecilia Rouse, the first black American to hold the job. Gina breaks down their backgrounds and their significance to the U.S. economy and markets. Then it's over to Europe, where Liam Proud in London and Lisa Yuka in Milan walk me through a series of CEO and chairman swaps involving Lloyd's, Credit Suisse, HSBC, and Unicredit. Give a listen. Greetings, Gina Chong. Where do I find you? In California today? Yes, I'm in the Uh, Sunshine State. All right. Well, good. Well, so you've been keeping an eye on Joe Biden's cabinet and other picks for his economic team. I thought maybe we'd go through some of these because, of course, you you helped put together the economic dream team machine, which we've talked about on this show before. And uh, we now have many of the of the slots filled. Let's go through. Let's start with the big one. Um, let's go one by one and then talk about the big picture that this this represents. So we have Janet Yellen at the Treasury. That's that is historic. No. Yeah, she will be the first woman to lead that department since it was established in, I think it was 1789. So she's definitely breaking a glass ceiling as she's had um, throughout her career. She was the first woman uh, to chair the Federal Reserve. Um, And I think she's the first person, if she gets this, to have led both the Council of Economic Advisors, the Fed and the Treasury. Wow, that's like an EGOT. Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. And, but, and now she's also got, um, I mean, she's known, what is she known for for some of her economics? She's looked at labor market economics, right? Yeah, and she's known to be uh, dovish in her uh, views on interest rates. Um, since she's left the Fed, she's been very vocal about the need for more stimulus spending from Congress, um, which are things that she didn't really comment on when she was at the central bank. So she's uh, really pushing for legislators to do a lot more to aid um, the economy and and workers who have been hurt um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. We also have a woman who's going to be running the, the Council of Economic Advisors, Cecilia Rouse. What do we know about her, Gina? So she is a labor economist. She's done a lot of research on um, racial gaps in the economy. We should also say she's she's a, she's African American. Yes, and Probably she will the be first the first time that yes. we've had someone in that position, right? Yes, exactly, and that's part of uh, Biden's push to have a very diverse cabinet. And her post as CEA chair will be elevated back to the cabinet. Um, Donald Trump had demoted that position out of the cabinet. So we'll we'll see her um, back in cabinet meetings. Uh, as and, of, and of course, her, her predecessor, I saw it for Trump, Kevin Hassett, actually said something nice about the pick. Yeah, she's um, very well respected in economic circles. She had worked at the White House before um, at the National Economic Council. Um, and I think as a CA member, she was a dean of the uh, Princeton School of um, International Affairs. So she has a great resume um, and has done a lot of 
research on income inequality, especially when it comes to um, sort of racial justice issues. And that fits right into a lot of the issues that have come to the forefront during the pandemic and things that Biden wants to focus on. Right. And then she, in the office, she'll have two other economists, Heather Bushi and Jared Bernstein, right? Yes. And they are both uh, much more on the progressive side of sort of the political spectrum. So um, that's also been something that the Democratic Party has been pushing for. So we can expect um, the economic team to focus a lot more on workers um, and elevating their rights, maybe looking at paid sick leave and, and minimum wage and uh, bigger structural issues in the economy um, rather than just trying to aid those during the pandemic as more of a temporary fix. I think they're trying to look at more uh, long-term issues. And Jared Bernstein was uh, was in the office of the vice president for Joe Biden, no? Yeah, he was his uh, top economic advisor. Um, I think maybe uh, not until the end of the Biden, uh, the Obama administration, but sort of in, in the middle of it. Right, okay. Now we go good into the White House, the other building across from where, um, where uh, Jared Bernstein's office was. Brian Deese is going to be the, what is it, the National Economic Council chief, right? That's the job that Gary Cohn had in the first uh, year or two of the Trump administration, then passed on to Larry Kudlow. What do we know about Brian? Yeah, he hasn't been formally announced yet, but that is the assumption and, and what a lot of the media have been reporting. Um, he also has a lot of experience. He was um, in the Obama White House. He helped uh, orchestrate the auto bailout um, during the financial crisis and has worked on um, both the economic team, but also uh, I think as deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. So he has a lot of experience. Um, since then, he has been at BlackRock as head of their um, ESG investing. So he's gotten some pushback from progressives uh, because of those ties, but that is not a Senate confirmed post. So um, if Biden wants him, he should be able to get in. Right. So Gary Cohn didn't have to get confirmed by the Senate. Yes. No, that that would have been quite a show. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and so then you mentioned BlackRock. There's a guy named Wally Adeyemo, who's going to be the deputy treasury secretary, also breaks new ground. He's a uh, black American. Um, I believe he also had a stint at BlackRock, no? Yeah, he was a senior advisor there. I think he was uh, interim chief of staff for um, chief executive Larry Fink for a while. Uh, but he also was um, head of the Obama Foundation, um, has a deep experience also um, at the White House. He was deputy national security advisor for international economics. Um, so it's it's a team that has a lot of policy experience, White House experience. Uh, they are people who are seen as being able to hit the ground running. Right. And then uh, there's another person who's been put in the Office of Management Budget, right, OMB, Nira Tandon. Yes. Now, what do we, we, we know Nira, what, but what do, we, what do we think about that position, that post? Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting post. Uh, pick, I should say, because she's was um, and still is head of the Center for American Progress, which is 
sort of a left wing think tank um, and very influential in the Democratic Party. She was also pretty involved in the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. So as a result, she's seen as fairly partisan um, and a lot of uh, allies of Senator Bernie Sanders also aren't fans of her because of her role in on the Hillary team in, in 2016. So she could actually have a pretty difficult time. There's already been several Republican senators who have come out against her. And if that party is likely to hold the majority in January, uh, she could be one of those who, who may not make it over the fence. Well, she she was pretty close to Hillary Clinton, no? Yeah, she's, she's very close to Hillary. And she's been um, kind of like a, our current president, she is prolific on Twitter, so she has a lot of views that she's put out there, uh, particularly yeah. about the Republican Party. And I think she's had to go through and sort of uh, revisit some of those. And, and she's maybe deleting to, tweets. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, all, see, it, there is a sort of sense that, I mean, all the coverage, at least that I'm reading, suggests that Neera Tandon has been thrown up as like the, I don't know, the, almost the distractive, sacrificial lamb we're going to have one that the Republicans are going to take town, but they'll more or less give Biden um, in the Senate uh, confirmation of, of, of his important positions. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think so. I mean, traditionally, it, it has been the case that the Senate, no matter uh, which party is in power, has given a new president in his first term his cabinet picks. It's very rare to um, to block um, any of them, really. So having one who may not make it, um, especially in these very partisan times, uh, could be enough to sort of satisfy the Republican Party. And, you know, a lot of Biden's picks are pretty centrist. Um, and particularly on the economic side, uh, Janet Yellen's already gotten uh, compliments from both sides of the aisle. We'll likely see that with Cecilia Rouse as well. Uh, so I don't imagine the others will have a hard time. Now, I guess let's, there's two thoughts before we close here. One is you've got two people from BlackRock, potentially, if Brian Dees is name, named to, to run the NEC. Is BlackRock the new Goldman Sachs? Well, so a lot of people are, are sort of looking at it that way. I mean, I don't put it in, in those terms just because uh, Brian Deese and Wally Adeyemo were not, you know, they're not Larry Fink. It's not the CEO coming right, in. Right, it's not like Hank Paulson, Gary exactly. Cohn, yeah. uh, Bob Rubin, all of whom were, you know, senior, senior partners running the show at Goldman Sachs and then went over to run economic positions in various White Houses. This is, these are lower level folks. Exactly. Uh, but it does show that BlackRock is becoming a bigger political target. Um, there have been already questions about uh, the firm in terms of its close ties to the Fed and running some of their um, uh, pandemic aid uh, facilities. Um, there have been questions about, you know, whether they are too close to other facets of the government. And when there was talk about Larry Fink, you know, possibly being in the mix to be Treasury Secretary, there was quite a bit of an uproar among the left wing of the Democratic Party. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how um, that firm gets treated in D.C. because they are facing actually some big regulatory issues um, just in terms of uh, 
some of the regulators looking more at asset managers, um, possibly in like the systemic risk areas. Uh, there's a bunch of things about um, investments in China that could be curbed under the Biden administration. So they will be in the crosshairs. Right. So if you look at the whole thing, the mosaic here, and there's still some open, you know, we still need to see who he chooses for Department of Commerce, um, who will be the U.S. trade representative, of course, and then the Fed when when Jay Powell's uh, term comes due in, when is that, 2022? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so that, that will give us the full picture. But, but based on what you see here, how would you sort of assess the economic team of Joe Biden? It's a very competent diverse team, which he is, uh, had set out to, uh, to formulate. So these are definitely people who aren't going to need, you know, a sort of policy 101 um, lessons. They can really hit the ground running. The big question will be, though, how the Senate will work with them, um, especially if it is still in the hands of the Republicans because Biden really wants to go big on a stimulus, but that will probably have to be curbed a bit if the GOP still controls uh, that body. And so how they work together and how Yellen, um, who has not really had to deal with partisan politics, her history has been at the Fed, which has, you know, prided itself in its independence and sort of not being dragged into political fights uh, at mm -hmm. Treasury, that will be very different. And she will be have to be wheeling and dealing with um, politicians on both sides of the aisle. And how she handles that will be really interesting. All right. Well, we've got a couple more um, nominations to come before we can actually give them a score uh, using your economic dream team. But we'll be back when they do. Thank you, Gina. Great. Thanks. Okay, Liam, so you need to help us understand a little bit about all the musical chairs that's taking place in the European banking industry. Just this week, we saw new, new faces, well, I say old faces popping up at new institutions, Credit Suisse, HSBC, Lloyd's, Unicredit. What's going on? Yeah, so it's, it's all changed at the moment at the top of Europe's big banks. Um, so probably the sort of the easiest way to start is that the very well-known Lloyd's CEO, guy called Antonio Horta Rosario has been there for a very long time, roughly a decade. Um, he is leaving um, and he's going to Credit Suisse. He's going to chair Credit Suisse to replace Urs Rona. Um, he will be replaced at Lloyd's by a guy called Charlie Nunn, who is currently one of the very top dogs at HSBC. He runs the global um, retail banking, wealth management, private banking franchise, which is absolutely massive. Um, and he will be filling Aho's shoes at Lloyd's. Right, and then Lisa in Milan, you you wrote this week about uh, a pretty shocking uh, bit of news, which is that the CEO of Unicredit, the number two lender in Italy, uh, parted is parting company with its CEO. Yeah. Yes, I mean we had a real showdown. I mean what sounded like a real showdown between the CEO, Jean-Pierre Moustier, and his board. Um, I mean, he has announced, uh, Moustier, that he will stay on until the end of his term, in theory, until April. But we know that there are active searches for a replacement, uh, um, which, you know, could be announced quite soon. Right, Although we right. don't know yet who this person will be. 
Well, what's interesting about this is it sort of raises some of the, the strategic challenges or the, the, that each of these institutions uh, are wrestling with. Let's let's start with Credit Suisse. Um, so now now AHO is going over as chairman, which is a little different job. They, they you know they, there's a new CEO there named Thomas Gottstein. What uh, what is he going to have to think about as chairman of Credit Suisse, Liam? Yeah, so it's nice as you say. You know, when when, when a bank changes CEO or chairman, you sort of you get a nice little window into how the board is thinking about the future. Um, I mean, the most notable thing, if you speak to investors about AHO at Lloyd's, um, he's one of, I think, the very few bank CEOs who has been um, at a bank for a very long time and sort of comes out um, with a little bit of glory. Um, he's basically seen as someone who absolutely slashed the cost base at Lloyd's and basically made it the most profitable UK retail bank. Um, and that was not lost on the Credit Suisse board, I understand, was that this is a guy who knows how to take cost out. Credit Suisse has a relatively large investment bank compared to its cross-table UBS. Um, and I think that is somewhere that they'll need to be losing the cost. I mean, the interesting thing there is that you're getting a guy who's been in an operating role, who's been a very hands-on CEO, and he's going to be um, a chairman. Um, it's an interesting question where the kind of chairman responsibility ends, and where the CEO responsibility ends, especially when you have a guy who's very much used to having his own way. So I think that'll be an interesting thing to watch at Credit Suisse. Right, right. And they, but they, and then they also have other, I mean, strategic issues that they need to deal with. I mean, there was, it wasn't that long ago that people were talking about them, a potential takeover target. Definitely, yeah. I mean, you know, the overriding problem at Credit Suisse is that they basically have the same business model as UBS, um, which makes it very, very clear. You know, they're both global wealth management managers with a investment bank kind of welded onto the side. Um, and Credit Suisse is just, you know, ever so slightly worse in every area than UBS is the basic impression you have. It's trades at a slight valuation. Um, you know, it's, it has these kind of occasional surprising blow-ups, these big trading losses every now and then. Um, and the kind of this slightly historically unappealing governance wrapper around the whole thing where you've obviously had the spying scandal recently. So he needs to, you know, raise those levels to UBS's um, level in all those different areas, I think. Right. And then the, the institution he leaves behind, as you say, is in pretty good shape. So who is this Charlie Nunn character that's coming over from HSBC and what is he going to have to wrangle with? So it's Charlie Nunn is an interesting one. I, 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 for my money, there's, there's very few people in banking who have control of such a big PL that so few people would have heard of, I think, as Charlie Nunn. So he <laughs> runs this, yeah, he, he runs this bit of HSBC called Personal and Wealth Banking or Wealth and Personal Banking, which is absolutely enormous. I mean, it covers everything from Mexican retail banking to US credit cards to Asian private banking to, you know, wealth management. It's, it's this huge sprawling division that is, you know, several times larger than Lloyd's. Um, and I think it, it's kind of interesting. It says a lot about the relative appeal of, you know, running an enormous chunk of HSBC compared to running a much smaller, more focused lender. Um, you know, you might assume it as the other way around if you just if you just cared about size. But obviously, you know, you, you do have a lot less control if you're basically sitting sitting underneath the HSBC group CEO. So I think what he's basically going to have to do at Lloyd's is is kind of more of the same as of what um, AHO did. You know, keep slashing away costs, keep your eye out for a deal. Um, maybe you can consolidate, maybe not. It's going to depend on what the political winds of change are saying there. Um, but there's no huge change of direction, I think, at Lloyd's. 
Right. And then the, the institution he leaves, HSBC, does have a few strategic questions it has to solve, no? Totally. I mean, you know, you only have to look at the business that he ran to just wonder. I mean, it's always been a question with HSBC, you know, the, the sort of old joke is, you know, you ask someone for directions and they say, I wouldn't start from here. I mean, you, you would never invent HSBC if it didn't exist. It's, it's right. a, slightly... so a sort of subscale US bank, a yeah. meh UK bank, I guess, or decent UK bank, I don't know. And then you've got- yeah, Which um, is ring fenced. You can't do right. anything with the capital right. in that. Right, and then you have this, you know, really important position in Hong Kong, which was the origin of Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation. Totally, and it's a good business, probably the Hong Kong Retail Bank and you know the Asian Wealth Management Division and bits of the investment bank. They're nice, but they they get totally obscured by this global sprawl, which makes it very hard to get anything done. Right. Um, so, then it, so yeah, I, I wouldn't. I I don't blame him for, for, for not wanting to sit in this kind of slightly confusing global structure. Right. Well, hey, he's good to be CEO of a, of a big company. It's fine. That's what every every great banking executive desires, right? Um, and then you have, of course, uh, across the channel and over the mountains down to Italy, Lisa, we have the Moustier situation. What's what? Uh, how should we really why should we care about what happens with Unicredit, given that they've sort of in some ways been eclipsed so uh, dramatically by their crosstown rival in Intesa? Well, I mean, the exit of Moustier, I mean, is first of all dramatic, and we have seen that the market didn't like it at all. I mean, Unicredit lost 8% on the day of the announcement, and, you know, it had already sort of lost another sort of 5% the day before. So so clearly, you know, this news has kind of shaken investors, because we, we have to remember that Moustier, when he took the helm about four years ago, um, I mean, he practically saved Unicredit. I mean, Unicredit was close to to breaking point, and he managed to convince the market to to back his 13 billion euro capital increase and and embarked on a deep cleaning on the bank of the bank's balance sheet on a you know cost cutting mission. You know, on on a, on a you know he rebuilt the bank basically. I mean, the, the the problem if you if you want is that he then probably stumbled a little bit because he tried, I mean, uh, to, I mean, obviously he never confirmed that, the bank never confirmed that, but, you know, the, the, there's been sufficient reports, including by Reuters, saying that he tried to do a, a big cross-border merger, probably first with SoftGen, and he may be considered a commerce bank, it didn't work. And then he was quite opposed to doing any M&A in Italy and, and actually wanted to sort of shrink, if you want, the business here or somehow not be too reliant. Even well, there was a it, sense that he didn't like Italy. There was a certain, you get down in Italy and you, and you talk to people and Italians, they tend to think that he was he was disparaging of the place and, and uh, you know, not, didn't make a lot of friends there. And I mean, that's sort of the rap on, on Jean-Pierre. And, and there is also people point out that, for instance, over the past year during the pandemic, they reduced risk-weighted assets quite dramatically, something like 50 billion euros. And sort of, you know, that's that's a sign that they weren't committed to Italy, even in its one of its darkest hours. What do you say to that? that I mean, he clearly saw Italy as a potential risk. I mean, even though Italy, let's uh, remember, makes up about 40% of the bank's revenue. I mean, Unicredit clearly has large operations also in Germany, Austria and Eastern Europe. But Italy is like, you know, about 40%. Mm -hmm. um, you know, agreed that, you know, 
actually was a risk. I mean, you may remember that we had um, a new uh, Eurosceptic government in place, spread were blowing out uh, again, and, and uh, you know, uh, clearly the bank was facing, you know, quite high funding costs because it was based in Italy despite, you know, its pan-European operation. But clearly this kind of Euro breakup theme has just gone away now. I mean, it's no longer, you know, in the mind of investors. I mean, the European Central Bank through the pandemic has, has clearly been pumping uh, up cash into the system. I mean, it's, it's really not an issue. And as you mentioned, um, in the, sorry, rivals in particular Intesa, uh, Intesa have actually been able to grow in this, let's say, risky environment and even make acquisitions that the market has liked. I mean, the, 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 the last one is obviously the acquisition of UbiBanka. And, and so if you look at the share performance of the two banks, I mean, you, you can see that uh, while Intesa has gained, you know, quite a bit, I think it's, you know, up 30%, I mean, over the last four and a half years, uh, I mean, Unicredit is down 11%. So, so we're in a situation where Intesa is kind of worth twice as much as Unicredit and, and also trades at a sort of higher price to book uh, value multiples. So clearly um, it's created some anxiety amongst board members, you know, and question marks. And the last remark I would make is that uh, maybe the, 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 the turning point came when Unicredit found itself, I mean, quite recently under enormous government pressure to engage in M&A in Italy and in particular to buy troubled Monte dei Paschi di Siena. And, uh, and he was standing quite firm on that front, you know, not really wanting to. Well, that's to... why the market responded so violently to his uh, ouster, no? I mean, people were, the, the market was like, all right, they're going to stuff this troubled bank with, well, I mean, I've seen numbers saying that they've got 10 billion potential legal liabilities plus you know, quite a bit of NPLs or non-performing loans they need to get through. So the, that seems to be the, explain the market reaction, at least yesterday. So what happens now? They've got to put it, they, they have a chairman, Pierre Carlo Padoan, right? Who was the yes, former, former minister, finance minister. Yeah. Or finance minister. And, uh, and he, he is, uh, he's got to find a new CEO, stat, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a problem. I mean, uh, obviously, I would say that uh, the, the, the Monte Paschi issue is still very much alive because the government, the Italian government, uh, has a problem with this bank, has agreed to sell it as part of a rescue plan uh, three years ago, agreed with the European Union. And, and Unicredit is kind of the only bank um, potentially able to absorb this problematic bank, because I mean, Intesa San Paolo has called itself out of this trouble, you know, with its uh, acquisition of Ubibanka. So the fear of the market is that the, if they find a CEO who's more complacent, or you know, not complacent, who's more, let's say, um, flexible when it comes to the government terms, maybe Unicredit uh, will have to buy. Uh, you know, who have to, to do a, a bad deal. And, and, and that's a concern. That is a concern. Now, the, now uh, Liam, a couple of weeks ago, you wrote a piece about, um, that looked at uh, the difficulty of finding talent bankers to run, you know, to, to be CEOs of banks in, I don't know if it was just Europe yeah. or, or the world, but I mean, it's sort of, I guess what we're seeing here, this sort of musical chairs is, uh, is evidence that that is, that is indeed a, an issue. 
I think so. I mean, what, what's notable to me in the sector is, I mean, just, just take Moustier, who, who we've just been talking about. I've I've lost count of the amount of bank CEO jobs that he gets linked to. It seems like right, all, HSBC CEO yeah. he yeah. was supposed to be on. Yeah, it's right. Every he Which, his name uh, would always come up. Yeah. The people people now talk about him in connection with Barclays because Jeff Staley is leaving. Uh, potential replacement to uh, Udea at Sockgen, which might make sense in my opinion. But that you know that tells you one this guy's highly rated, and and the same with um, Antonio Horta or at Lloyd's. Um, they can pretty much, you know, walk into a job they choose. But you do also have to wonder why why is it the same names that always do the rounds? Why are there no Americans being mentioned in the connection with these jobs? Why are there no Because they don't get paid. They don't get paid. I can answer that question too. That's, <laughs> yeah. They don't get paid. They have pay caps in Europe that they don't have in the United States. Although the only thing I would say, you never heard of Charlie Nunn and he's now the CEO of Lloyd. So there's the one example of someone, you know, that's that, that true. Is an exception to the rule. Although he's an he's a, he's an insider, right? And and there is this class of people, you know, new CEOs. I think of Gottstein at Credit Suisse. Um, you know, there's a new guy at Commerce Bank, Manfred Knopf. There's uh, Alison Ruse at NatWest, formerly RBS, and they're all Noel Quinn at HSBC. They're internal appointees, but for my mind, they don't solve the problem of you know fresh blood. They've been at these institutions for a very long time, and banking is quite unusual, I think, in in not attracting outside talent for a company for, for a sector that talks about digital as much as it does for a sector that talks about you know consumer relationships and you know being very forward thinking and trying to have you know whizzy apps and stuff you generate people kind of trying to solve these problems and they're all career bankers um i don't know i don't i don't think it says anything good um about the future of european banking that you have the same names being passed around all right well thank you liam in london and thank you lisa in milan talk to you soon cheers rob bye that's our show for the week thanks to my guests and hats off to our producer freddie joiner as well as oliver taslick in london and amanda gomez in new york our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast exchange on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. Stay healthy.